0: I never thought my
1: child was the type to die by suicide. I thought he loved life. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please check out my Patreon page. There you'll be able to support me financially with as little as a dollar a month. Your support will help me offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's Patreon P A T R E O N.com slash the depression In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health, topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm really excited tonight on the line we have Anne Moss Rogers. Anne Moss is a public speaker, a certified suicide prevention trainer a NAMI Virginia board member, and an award-winning author. She's also the mother of a son who lived with depression and addiction and died by suicide. Anne Moss, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me, Al. I really appreciate it.
1: Uh, I, You know, I want to start just by saying I am so sorry. I know it was several years back now, but I am so sorry for the tragic loss of your son.
0: Well, I really appreciate it because... It will always hurt, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, 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 that hurt never goes away. But it's not as intense as it once was. It has softened over the years.
1: Right. Well, I, I also hope that in some way, you know, it was obviously quite, quite impactful and life-changing in the direction of the work you're doing and so forth, which we'll soon get into. So I hope that there's some solace in knowing the the amazing good work you're doing to try to make sure it doesn't happen to other families is pretty incredible.
0: Absolutely. And it took me a while to accept that that was what I was supposed to do and the universe was pushing me in that direction. But I have accepted it. Um, and it, you know, at first is like, really, really, that's what I'm supposed to do. That This is what I'm meant to do. But um, like I said, I've accepted it now. and
1: with with passion (laughs) oh absolutely and and i just i do want to let the listeners know that we of course talked ahead of time and that that you did say you know you're you're always talking about charles and and his death and how it impacted the family um because i i would never want to put someone in an awkward situation or or a situation that is triggering for themselves or anything So I really appreciate and and think it is so powerful that you are willing to talk about your son's death. And I I know Charles died by suicide and he was just 20 years old. I'm wondering, can you tell us just a bit about what was going on in his life at that age at 20? He must have been through with high school, I'm guessing.
0: He was. He he didn't graduate till he was 19. But I tell you, the last five years of his life were utter chaos for our family. So there was a time in my grief where I felt relief because he, you know, it was so chaotic for everyone, and he was he was in such agony. And uh, so the last five years, he struggled a lot with addiction, and that made him feel like less than a human being and i wish i had known that I, I didn't until after he died and i read his rap music
1: you didn't and, know how he felt or you didn't know he was dealing with addiction
0: well i did know about the addiction i didn't know for a long time i probably lived with him 10 months before um you know he lived in my house and and i didn't know but he had had some substance misuse issues prior to that, and he had been to a therapeutic boarding school. We had, you know, kidnapped him out of his bed and sent him to a wilderness program, both of which made him a pretty angry teenager and young adult. And I can understand that. Do you, but in we hindsight,
1: that, in hindsight, I know you were obviously trying to do what was best for him. Do you think that you would have handled that differently in hindsight?
0: you know, I still don't know. And I I usually, I'm very honest with that. And when I wrote my first book, I tell the story and I tell it from my point of view. And then I have his songs in there to tell from his point of view. And then I have a chapter that I kind of, it just came to me one night. And I thought, you know, I feel like it's some kind of divine intervention and I included it in the book. Awesome. Kind of the reason that that he would have told me if he had written this this note to me. Because I wanted people to understand the story from his point of view as well. Right. So that they understood the from the family's point of view, but from the person that suffered, you know, the depression as well. I learned so much after he died that I learned this whole new person. And that also took me a while to resolve that, that I knew my son better in death than I did in life.
1: Right, right.
0: And there was some regret there. Yeah. You know, of course.
1: Did uh, So one, I'm curious, was his addiction related to drugs, alcohol, a combination?
0: Drugs and um, substance use disorder runs in my family. Okay. So I suspected pretty early on that Charles might be susceptible to substance use disorder. Right. You know, it started with with alcohol and then marijuana. And then eventually over the years, he graduated to um, heroin, opiates, whatever you want to call it. But I mean he was pretty much a poly substance misuser. I mean he and he loved psychedelics. Okay. You know, because he wanted to escape and he wanted to numb his pain, but he also kinda got obsessive about it at right. some point. And he admits that in his songs and in his music.
1: Right. Well, and that there's a reason they call it self-medicating, right? Like you mentioned, it was, exactly. it was a way for him to escape, a way for him to escape the pain he was dealing with, I'm sure. Um, yeah. You mentioned chaos the last five years of his life, which means from the about the age of 15 to 20. Can you give us a little description of what you mean when you say it was chaos? For And it sounds like it was chaotic, I'm guessing, by some of what his behaviors were, but chaotic in, for the family.
0: Exactly. So he started, I guess the first time um, he did something, he went off in the middle of the woods and he drank a lot. And he was weird when he came home. And that was the first time he smoked pot, too. But, you know, who knows if that's the very first time. It's the first time I knew about it. Right. And then... You know, there was more and more of that. Well, you know, typical parent, you do things like you take the, you know, you can't have this privilege. You know, you go to the punitive, which to a child who is struggling with depression, and I didn't know he had depression. That is not a real good, you know, parenting tactic, but it's the one we rely on. Right, and then, you know, I would go see mental health professionals and take him. And they never did a psychological evaluation. And so the first person I took him to is highly recommended. And this guy was just a charlatan. I mean, you know, that, <laughs> I don't know how, how else to put it. Right. But it, it was a bad recommendation. I mean, he's ba- basically a drug addict in a white coat. Oh, no. And. Yeah, it was not. I mean, the stuff he prescribed a teenager was ridiculous. And I think it was the last appointment, I'm sitting in the office, and I'm talking with this friend, and she's describing how it is for her son. And from my point of view, I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's describing this doctor as basically a drug dealer and somebody who's just in it for the money, which I kind of suspected was starting to suspect. Oh, and we is... never, oh, it was awful.
1: Yeah, that, that's horrific. And, you know, it's, it's really tough because the, the family's already going through a really traumatic time and you want to rely on this doctor and be able to trust them with their recommendations and so forth.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, Al, I'm sitting there and I'm saying, can I get a diagnosis? Because he's prescribing medication. Right. And and then he prescribes, you know, he says, well, you need to go see my in any way. Some LCSW worked with him, went to go see him. And the guy says, I think he might have bipolar. And then sends me home with some Lamictal that he takes out of the doctor's cabinet and hands to me and says, you need to start him on this. Well, Lamictal is like, I know it's off-label and it works, but I had no diagnosis that he had bipolar. I wasn't going to treat that 15- or 16-year-old with Lamictal without at least having a psychological evaluation, which they never gave me. Wow. They charged me. They charged me for some kind of evaluation they said I desperately needed, and one of them the insurance didn't pay for. And I'm like, all they told me was he was high risk. And I'm like, what does that even mean? (laughs) I'm like, hours of testing and hundreds of dollars, and all you're going to tell me is that he's high risk.
1: Right. And like you said, you you don't even really know what high risk means.
0: No, I didn't. And at the time I thought, well, he might, maybe they mean he might get in a drunk driving accident. Right. That's what I thought. I, they didn't say anything about suicide. They said nothing about depression. You know, I, the only thing we ever got was, I think he has anxiety. And I'm like, I didn't know. It wasn't until he went, you know, we kidnapped him out of his bed and took him to a wilderness program they did a psychological evaluation and it came back that he had depression anxiety cannabis dependence ADHD and he already had a sleep disorder which was delayed sleep phase syndrome
1: right wow so eventually you got an accurate uh diagnosis eventually. for him.
0: yeah But you know what, Al, that would have cost me $50 copay. I mean, had I just been able to ask for it by the phrase psychological evaluation. Right. And another thing I kept asking for was support groups. And nobody ever gave me a support group. And I mean, I must have asked four counselors. I'm like, why wouldn't you have that information? And why wouldn't you share it if you did?
1: You were looking for a support group for Charles or for for yourself, for the family? For
0: ourselves. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're going through this. Absolutely. And it's the first thing I tell families now is don't don't think that you need to send off your loved one to go get fixed. You have to adjust. You have to get educated, just like if your child had diabetes. You would have to adjust the family diet or, right. you know, there would have to be adjustments within the family made to accommodate somebody with some issues, yeah, you know?
1: Absolutely. And, and the first organization that comes to my mind is the the board you sit on, which is NAMI, because I know NAMI has some fantastic courses for families, And for those struggling, I know they are not a direct service provider, but offer a lot of education and support to families.
0: Oh, yeah, they actually are a direct provider. One of the few. So they have a they have a course called Family to Family. And that's an it used to be 12 weeks. Now it's eight weeks. And I I took that after he died. Right. I never found out about it. Nobody ever told me about it. Now. I did go to Families Anonymous because I found that for a support group because I could have gone to a mental health support group or I could have gone to uh, Families Anonymous. And I ended up at Families Anonymous. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so you, you know, you described some of the chaos of him just kind of coming in and acting odd and so forth. Uh, I'm guessing, I mean, he was in high school at the time probably and – was he getting up and going to school, and how? What was school like, and were you hearing from school? Well, and was he getting any support at school?
0: No, uh, not really. I yeah. mean, so when we say chaos, so sometimes he would come in and he would be high on God knows what substance, right. and it was was scary because you know he'd have robotic movements, which is robo tripping. I would find out later or he would fall asleep in front of me, and that would be the opiates. Um, You know, I would run into him in the middle of the night when I got up to check on, okay, I'm hearing a noise, and he'd be all bleary-eyed and and wobbly and very strange. One night, he's out on the roof peeing on the roof in 22-degree weather, and, I mean, he is totally out of it. God knows where in his mind Right. Um, we go to the beach and family vacation we're leaving to pack up and they walk somebody a stranger walks down shows me a picture and asks me if it's my child and I'm like yeah and, and I'm like where was this taken they said our store apparently he broke in there in the middle of the night and stole, like, we're talking $10 worth of items. Right. Um, Six-pack of Mike's Hard Lemonade, two cigars, and a package of Dorito. And he smashed the door down. Wow. And he goes to jail. And he would, had mixed his sleep medication with um, alcohol. And his counselor told me, said, that, he probably doesn't remember he said he he was out of his mind and he was and you can see it on the tape um so there were you know the police were showing up on my porch for one reason or another Uh, you know it's just constant and you know car accidents in the middle of the night totaled the car and then he was behaving recklessly and Meanwhile, he'd be going to school, and he had a panic attack one day at school, and they suspended him. And Al, he's standing there crying, saying, I want to talk to my mother. He's not hitting anyone. He's not threatening anyone.
1: Right. Wow.
0: Oh, my gosh. I mean, the school did not. They had the zero tolerance policy, and.
1: A, you know, zero, we would po- act- zero tolerance for children who are struggling and suffering. Apparently,
0: absolutely. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, wow. this was like a '70s juvenile detention center. I've never, I, I found my allies there. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And they tried to work around an administration that was not open. You know, it was all about the scores and looking good. Right. Right. And Charles wasn't making him look good. I mean, he was brilliant, but he wasn't making him look good. So therefore, any way we can kind of push anybody like that out the door, you know, they would take that opportunity to do so. Right.
1: That was a public school?
0: It was a public school. Wow. And he ended up going to boarding school. And we didn't have a boarding school bank account, but our home equity loan did.
1: Oh, my goodness. Wow. So... Along with his uh, substance abuse, uh, I would imagine his depression did depression just continue to spiral downward?
0: It did. so I didn't know about the depression until we got the uh, diagnosis in wilderness. so he was seventeen before we got that diagnosis okay, and You know, he didn't present that way. So they got all these pictures. They show these sad teenagers. Well, that's not what I saw. I saw a hyper social teenager. And in Charles's case, he was always afraid to be alone. So he's always asking for spend the nights. And I want this person to spend the night or stay for dinner. And then he'd keep him up all night because he didn't sleep. I mean, all night long. (laughs) Wow. Oh, my gosh, the child just was going 24-7. I mean, I've never, and he didn't have bipolar. And I, you know, it was always like his brain just lit up at night. Yeah. You know, creativity and, and I thought that meant he might be bipolar, but he just didn't have any of the other, he didn't have the mania. Right. And he didn't. You know, uh, it was just very, I, and it was, where did the drugs and and the mental illness begin? And that was always really difficult to tease apart.
1: Oh, I'm sure. And that lack of sleep can be so detrimental to one's mental health, too.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I, the, oh, I think that's where it all started. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, since he was two, he had a difficult time falling asleep. And I mean, to go in there when your child is seven years old and like first grade and it's nine o'clock and he can't fall asleep. And then I felt so helpless as a parent. I mean, we went to doctors, we went to sleep specialists and, you know, I can't drug him at that age. Right. And then a lot of the. Things that they want you to do, you have to have some level of maturity to be able to do them, right. you know, to follow sort of a sleep schedule and guess who has to do it with him. Yeah. And they were crazy. I mean, they were really, really hard. Yeah. Like you've got to stay up this many hours and then you have to wake and then, and you've got to do it for like a month. Oh, my goodness. And it may or may not work you know so you've done all that and then there's but there was no way i could get him to do it because he was so young
1: yeah yeah so at 17 though he was diagnosed with depression was he then uh, getting some type of psychological support with a therapist or what what types of things were going on as far as trying to support him because i know you were uh, obviously doing quite a bit
0: Right. So he was first in wilderness and then he got a lot of therapeutic support there. And we had a really great counselor there. And then he went to this therapeutic boarding school and he was not happy about going, but he had a therapist named Michelle, and oh my gosh, they got along really, really well. So he did have a lot of really good therapeutic support there. And he also had good therapeutic support at the next boarding school. It was once he came home, they kind of expect, you know, the teenager to make an appointment and drive there and show up for an appointment. This kid has got ADHD. You know? and yeah. I mean, I can't even get him to turn in his homework.
1: Right, right.
0: So unless you know, I drove in there and waited there, you know, at some point there has to be a willingness for him to go. And I wasn't I can't make him want therapy.
1: Yeah, I find that age is so difficult to deal with because you, you yeah, he I mean he's not a minor anymore at 19, 20. And like you said, if he refuses, it's pretty tough to force it upon him. So it's like he he came out of this really structured environment that was school and therapy and structured and supportive of him. And then all of a sudden he's at home and sounds like the wheels just kind of came off.
0: Yeah, but he was pretty jaded on the system at this point because we live in Richmond, Virginia. And before he left, any time we went and got support, there was a good dose of humiliation to go with it. You know, like we went to a psychiatrist, we waited six months to get the appointment. We go in, we sit down, he asks about drug use. And I mean, we couldn't deny it, right? you know. And when he said something about it, the guy just crossed his arms, stood up and shamed us out of his Uh, office. You know, I can't treat, you know, uh, it was just awful. And I'm like, this kid's 17. He is a mess. The last thing he needs is for you to act all resolute.
1: Yeah. And and like you said, shame him. That's awful.
0: Oh, and And, then they did it again at the next program where they shamed. I was shamed, too, and he saw that. So he became jaded against the system because so many people in the system in 2015, 2016, or, or earlier than that, actually, they just were very prejudiced. And, you know, and behind your back, the the kinds of things they would say is just like, I mean, I will still talk to doctors, ER doctors who will kind of, and an acquaintance of mine, uh, her husband is a doctor and he does this little, you know, well, we had all the cuckoos come in tonight. And I'm like, he didn't just say that to me. Right. He didn't just say that to me. And, you know, knowing that my child suffered from depression and died by suicide and had to go to the ER to be treated. And this man is sitting there going, Well, you know, we got all the cuckoos in there tonight. And I'm like, I wanted to launch across that table and strangle him. Yeah. My oh, husband sure. was on my knee, like, calm down. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, it's so sad to hear about the providers, right? These people who are there to help him and and shaming him and shaming you rather than understanding that addiction is an illness, too, and mental illness. And, you know, uh, it's interesting, too, how you said it's tough to tell where one ends and the other starts between substance abuse and mental illness that so often go together. And my understanding is that most dual programs really try to eliminate the drugs and alcohol from your system before they kind of attack the mental illness. Because you really have to be clear-headed and have a clear head to be able to deal with what's going on mentally. And and to get that out of your system to know that it's not the drugs and alcohol impacting you now because you're finally clean, now we can address the mental health.
0: Yeah, well, I think our kids today have underdeveloped coping skills to begin with, right? And you know, a lot of that has to do with the you know our our obsessed culture with grades and scores. So we're really not supporting the youth mental health at the the school level, right? And so I've been saying for years, and my most recent book talks a lot about creating that foundation of student wellness just make that your core your core mission and if you do you're going to get the scores you're going to have fewer discipline problems all the other things are going to develop if you focus on that one thing on student wellness and and they don't. they they think to get better scores, we have to focus on the scores. Well, that's like Elon Musk didn't say, "Oh, I'd, I really want to become a billionaire, so I'm going to focus on becoming a billionaire." He focused on his passion and what he loved, and he happened to become a billionaire in the process.
1: right, right. Yeah, I mean, we certainly within the schools, and I'm an administrator, have to really focus. And I think the, the pandemic has just exacerbated it. We are now working with kids who haven't been in school for a year and a half or two years, and staff too. And the oh, mental yeah. health needs are, are outrageous, right? And the the challenges mm-hmm. the kids have with just identify, just emotional intelligence, identifying their emotions, understanding the emotions, and knowing how to get centered again if you are dysregulated. And knowing, like, it's okay to be angry and mad, but let's recognize that and figure out what tools you have in your personal tool belt to, to get you calmed and ready to learn again.
0: Right. Well, I talked to so many teachers who had been through the suicide of a student and had just completely redone their own curriculum where they teach the material in a way that embeds a lot of critical thinking and connection and belonging and, you know, stories along the margins that allow students to have their voices and allow them to understand, you know, uh, talk about their mental health. You know, they would do things like on a scale from one to five every Monday, let's you tell us one to five, one being the lowest, five being the best where are you today, this Monday? And then after a while, the kids will tell you why there are one or two. Yep. And yep. then they start to make connections in the classroom because that connection and that belonging makes them feel included and makes them, you know, want to learn the material. Right, And then little mindfulness skills. You know, we can embed those into the curriculum we already had. I mean, oh, absolutely. Some of these, yes. Some of these ideas were so simple. Yeah. So simple.
1: Yeah. We've brought a great deal of that into the schools I've been in where we, we had all of our teachers trained around mindfulness and mindful movement. It was called. And we had coaches come in to work with the kids and to train the teachers while they were doing it. Yeah. It's all, it is very, that. very important stuff. Um, I would love to to get back to Charles though. So Charles, you had him at a boarding school, right? And then he came home, and it sounds like he, he was was unable to. It was a challenge, right, to try to get him to it to, was to go to you therapy. Know,
0: it was kind of like when he was in school, the therapist kind of came to them, and then you know, third period was when he went to the therapist. So it's kind of embedded in the day, right. But when he came home, we couldn't replicate anything like that.
1: Oh, no way.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, all I saw was this unmotivated child and, you know, we needed to help him find a purpose. But what Charles was focused on was surviving every day. Right. Because by this time, his thoughts of suicide were very, very prevalent and very strong. And- because of the substance misuse was worse than ever.
1: But you were at the time, you did not have that understanding at all.
0: Uh, uh-uh. right. no clue until I died. I never thought my child was the type to die by suicide. I thought he loved life. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, this is a kid that made everybody laugh. I mean, I would have to hold on the sides of the chair in order not to fall over.
1: Right. Right.
0: And I mean, it, It was just, you know, and we're parents and we're thinking, uh, oh, yeah, if he could just find a job, you know, we think that's going to be the magic bullet. We're just dying to find this magic bullet. And he's just trying to survive. And Al, I think he was trying to tell me stuff. And I just, I missed it. You know, I didn't really know what kind of struggles he had. And he would hint at them, like people with suicide often do, because of the stigma, and they don't know how it's going to be received. Right. They're they're often not very clear, and I do understand why.
1: Well, you know, I, I he, he also you you mentioned yourself uh, how awful his experiences were with the mental health system, right? And then for exactly. for him to share with with family just how deep and dark he had gotten that was probably a part of the concern too like does this mean i go back to a doctor who's gonna shame me because yes i'm drinking again oh. or using drugs or what would happen to me if i share that um so he was able to kind of put a, a smile on his face and, and make oh, yeah. make it appear that he was doing just fine but inside was really struggling
0: yeah i mean if anybody could put on the face of a clown it was charles yeah. I mean, it was, and I, I was so shocked at the body of music that he left behind, and the despair and self hatred and self loathing that it showed. I mean, you know, I, one of the lines of his song is "Songs is not actions were ugly teenage druggy looking for anything to numb me pathetic scummy." but you still love me. I would cry when I want to die and you would hug me. I was just like, wow. Wow, Oh, really powerful. Oh yes. I mean, I could only read maybe two songs a week. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it would just tear me up inside. Yeah.
1: That, oh, that must've been no. so hard to, to read those lyrics. Do you have any examples of where you think he was, maybe trying to drop some hints that that weren't picked up on
0: i do i actually have several um one is in around high school he started to talk about people who died young and said something like well i may never have children and there's a possibility i would i would die young and I remember just being so floored by that. I I didn't ask why. I I just didn't. I was just so floored and so stunned, you know, that I should have said, well, why would you say that? You know? Right. And, And I should have said it in a way that was empathetic and kind and not any way accusatory. Yeah. And then before he died, he posted on social media, if I died, no one would notice for thirty days, and I mean, that's a classic, classic line of suicidal thinking, but it wouldn't you know if it's not on your radar, yeah. you don't know that
1: right, and even a comment about dying early, I mean, you'd never know that maybe he had just heard about other illnesses that kids were were getting or accidents. there are so many things that probably go through one's mind other than especially a kid who seems so jovial and happy thinking about it being a, eluding to suicide at all.
0: I don't know. And then there was early on one night, there was a, a medication they tried on him and they should have never given him this. i found that later. And they were like, they gave a teenager this medication. It was from that first doctor and it he acted very strange that morning and about a week later he comes downstairs and he wants to talk to me and he goes remember that morning and I, I said yeah and he and I said you were really tough to get to school that day and he goes well i took a lot of pills and then i, I don't think i wanted to get up the next day and i was stunned but I said oh honey I'm so sorry tell me more about about that uh, you know inside I'm dying inside but you know I, I did ask him and I did listen but you know I thought oh you know we skirt we we got through this thank God he's still okay and I didn't know whether to call that a suicide attempt or not so I asked the next time we were at the psychiatrist and we were in there together and we're sitting on the sofa and I asked, well, is this a suicide attempt? And, and, how, and um, Charles kind of chimed in and, and added his and we're both staring at the guy. And then he just looks down his notes and then he looks up and starts talking about something else. Wow. I mean, it was like he glazed right over it and I'm like oh he must not have answered that because it's not a problem you know it's that's not what it was but my son had attempted suicide and I have since been listening to the radio I guess it was doctor radio and I heard somebody you know explaining that same thing to the psychiatrist and I'm like yes yes considered an attempt Because that is one of the number one indicators for someone dying by suicide is having a previous attempt.
1: Right. Yep, absolutely. And I
0: just didn't know how to define that. And then I thought, well, it's because of the medication. So it doesn't count, you know, which is crazy. Well, I would imagine
1: as a parent, there's a bit of denial too, right? And and Mm -hmm. not, not wanting it to be the case that you're... Son just tried to die by suicide.
0: Well, you you know, as a parent, you're looking at their life going, you know what? You have it reasonably well here. You know, you've got a boy, you've got a roof over your head, you have friends, you're happy. So it just doesn't occur to us that things are really so bad that my child could be thinking of suicide and, and would actually follow through with it and what what i think a lot of people don't understand is when people get in that kind of darkness they don't really have you know people say it's a choice but it's really something they're driven to in a moment of unspeakable pain whether it's emotional physical both
1: yeah absolutely
0: And, and it's kind of a trance like episode where it's kind of tunnel vision and the person's kind of in that mode for let's say 20 minutes and then it kind of dissipates because all feelings are temporary but it's during that time where you know they're intense peaks of, of really wanting to stop the pain and kill oneself right and i didn't you know i didn't know any of this and it it would actually take years for me to learn that
1: right yeah the amount of pain it's it's pretty incredible what would you have done differently in hindsight
0: gosh you know I think one thing I would have done is listen more and lecture less Uh uh-huh And another thing I would have done is I would have said, as much as I want you to get well, I love you even if you don't. And I was starting to learn to better communicate with him. In other words, keep my mouth shut. Allow those big gaps of silence. Because that's when he would start to fill in some blanks and start to tell me things. And that was through my... uh, support groups that i was learning that kind of communication and i was reading a lot of the pamphlets and i was really practicing and focusing on that and it was kind of like right when i got good at it was right before he died and I that you know i just feel like I i was just i was just getting good at it and and now now you've left us and, and I, I can't get it back anymore.
1: Right, right. How was it that uh, that you ended up finding out about the suicide?
0: So, unfortunately, I, I, I didn't walk in on the last scene. And I, I can't even begin to tell you how grateful I am for that and how sorry I am that other parents do walk in on that scenario because you can't unsee that. Right, right. But I was. Well, we were. We'd gone out to dinner. Uh, my son had gone to detox. He'd gone to rehab, and then he. We got him settled in a recovery house. And what happened is he relapsed the next day, and they took him back to detox because that was their protocol to do. The manager, the house manager, yeah, and they were they were wonderful. They also took him to the hospital to get a suicide check on him, and they refused to do it. Said they didn't take those patients, meaning people who had substance use disorder. Wow! So they they refused to do a you know a suicide assessment because he was you know addicted to heroin, and which is still unbelievable to me. Yeah. And so he goes to detox. He walks out and for two weeks. We didn't know where he was. And we go out to dinner one night. <clears throat> and we are struggling because we hadn't heard from him that day. And I was, my red alert was up I knew something was wrong. And I'm goosebumps all day. I'm uncomfortable. I can't sit down. And we go to this restaurant. I don't even know if we ate food there that night. I don't, I don't even know, but we did order something and I don't I don't know where it went. I do remember paying and that is about all I remember. And the police had called us and we met them in the parking lot, I'm in the back and the husband's in the front. And as soon as I get in, the, the policeman said, uh, I have some sad news to share. Your son, Charles has been found dead this morning. And, I mean, we crumpled. I I have never wailed and screamed. I didn't even know I could make those sounds. Right. My ears ears fill with noise. And one of the first things I did is I started to brush at my skin. And I'm like, I'm literally thinking that I can get out of my skin and shed it and get into another light that's shiny and new very surreal. I mean, you, you're not thinking. And then my husband takes a break and he goes, well, how did he die? And I'm thinking to myself, that is a crazy question. But of course it's not. I mean, it's a perfectly logical question, but I am sure it's overdose. I'm just so positive for whatever reason. And then the policeman says suicide and the husband just loses it. And I freeze. I just can't, I can't even let the word get in my brain. And I said, you mean, you mean like he killed himself? And the method left no question. They actually didn't say suicide. They they said the method. Mm-hmm. And I was just absolutely stunned. And then I, the first thing I thought after that was how could I be such a crummy mother that my child would check out on me? I didn't he know we loved we loved him. And it's not about love. And it's it's not about how much you love someone. You know, if if that's all we needed then we could cure a lot of stuff. Right. But You know, it was so much deeper than that. And it would really take me a long time to understand why suicide. But I made the commitment to do that. I made the commitment to learn more. And the way I really learned the most was not studies. It was going to some out-of-the-darkness walks and finding people who were attempt survivors who so beautifully and so graciously shared their experiences with me and helped me understand and it was through those conversations that i really started to begin to heal and they were so so valuable because i needed to have something to put in that why yeah and i had to understand that it it wasn't what i thought it was it was something different than I thought it was. Mm -hmm. And I was open-minded and I learned to shut up and listen and be compassionate. And, and that, that was a big difference.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. Well, again, I'm so sorry for the loss of Charles. I think, um, you know, something you mentioned earlier and I wanted to, to chime in about it was, that you don't think it's a choice and I have to say as somebody who was suicidal like it it, I, I it is not about a choice to die by suicide because first of all I know from the depths of depression that I was in that my mind wasn't even functioning properly my cognition was not there my memory my focus you know so I think many times, most of the times probably, that somebody attempts suicide or dies by suicide, they have pretty much a, a brain that is ill, right? And it's not functioning um, yeah. properly. And it's not like they're they're making a choice and a decision. If they are working with an ill brain, with a mental illness, and they're not able to think right, I think there is an incredible feeling for many, for me, it was definitely a feeling of being a burden, you know, feeling like, right. like everybody would be better off without me here, Um, because that's what depression does to you. And that's what the, the depths that it, it can bring you to. Um But I also wanted to say, I think it's awesome that you had conversations with suicide attempt survivors who were able to shed a light for you. And I think that's those are some people that I don't know, and I could be wrong, but I don't know if we've tapped into that population enough to learn more about yeah. suicide to help us with our prevention work.
0: Well, back then, they were considered too delicate to talk about it, and which is ridiculous. But so I wasn't finding a lot of data. And that's why I'm like, well, forget it. I'm going to this out of the darkness walk. And I would just start conversations with people and I wasn't, you know, meddling, but they freely shared their story with me. I mean, they were already at an out of the darkness walk. So yeah, they absolutely. were already sort of ready to talk about it.
1: For sure. Yep.
0: Yeah. Now it, you see more stories now. Right. And We're starting to tap into that more. But I'm like, why are we not asking the people that are struggling with this? And I started doing a lot of online work where they came to me and they put comments. And I I did a lot of articles based on search engine optimization so that they would find them in Google. Yeah. And I learned, oh, my God, I bet I've answered tens of thousands of people who've been struggling all over the world now.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, I would say, of course, there is a time where it's too delicate, right? If it's fresh and it was a six months ago, three months ago suicide attempt, they probably aren't willing to talk about it. Somebody who's moved beyond Mm -hmm. and has been working at getting healthy and it's a year out or further, it probably depends, varies person by person. But and and the same thing I say for sharing just a story about living with depression, you know, I always say, like, when the time is right, I think it's incredibly important to share those stories if you can. And when the time is right, Um, because I think it helps others be able to understand they aren't alone, realize they can reach out for help, um, get over the stigma and the shame that is so powerful. Um, So tell us you I know you wrote an article that kind of described what happened with the family after the death of Charles?
0: I did. I wrote an article that was, um, let's see, let me think of the name of it. Honoring my son who died by suicide is not the end of my story. And it took me five months to write that article. So after he died, I would you know go back and do normal life things, as hard as that was. But, you know, I still had to feed my family, right? So I had to go to the grocery store. And I would run into people and I would talk about my child and they would cut me off mid-sentence. And I would try to talk about him again and the same thing would happen. Well, that just pissed me off.
1: Yeah, they were just <laughs> too like, too frightened to engage in a conversation about it?
0: Yes. Right. It's fear. It's all based on fear. Yeah. Like. Or they're going to remind me, or they don't know what to say. Right. It's it's all, you know. Yeah. When I talk to people now about I want to talk to my friend, they are nervous, and this this can be a friend that they've been friends with for a long time. Right. They're they're really nervous because it just feels so big, and and they don't know how to walk into somebody else's pain like that. Right. And and just be there. It's. It, And people feel really helpless. So, and you had a question and I I got off on a tangent.
1: (laughs) Yeah. uh, Well, you were talking about engaging people around the conversation. This had to do with the article that you had written. Yeah.
0: So I wrote the article. I felt real good about it. It took me five months to make it like, you know, I went through angry phase, a bitter phase, you know, and you, you can't send an article like that. But you know what? Writing that article helped me identify those phases. It helped me through those phases. And I was even able to laugh at myself sometimes. I send it in after five months, and then I felt so, so good. And then they call me two months later to tell me it's published and how honored she is and I'm not listening because I am starting to panic. I'm just going, oh my gosh, I've written this story. I've told no one, Al. Right. Not my husband, not my mother, not my business wow. partner. It's going to be on the front page of the newspaper. and Oh I'm my like, goodness. Oh, holy. Oh, holy heck. What am I going to do? <laughs> so, I, I pulled her to the south road. I did some breathing exercise so I wouldn't like you know, have a complete panic heart attack in my car. <laughs> right. And then I'm like, you know what? Everyone knows me. They know me. I'm a bold person. I've always been that way. It's not going to be a huge surprise. And I just need to tell my loved ones. And then I need to share it. And then I just need to cut off all electronics and go on a long hike with my dog <laughs> right. and leave the social media alone for at least 24 hours. Yeah. And my biggest fear was that no one would read it and it would feel like I had buried his memory all over again. But that's not what happened. It went viral. This little article in this little newspaper in Richmond, Virginia, 2,000 comments from all over the world. I mean, it was trending for weeks and weeks and weeks. It was just incredible. That is
1: amazing. That's really cool. It was. So, you know, one thing I want to come back to is you mentioned all these different phases of your emotions that you went through that you were able to get, get out through your writing. I'm curious, and you may not be even be able to answer this because I'm not sure if you've dealt with death in any other ways, but I would, I've, I've always thought that grieving the death of somebody who's died by suicide must be so much more complicated than grieving for somebody who's passed away of a natural cause.
0: You know, I would never say to another parent that my loss hurts more right. than you because you can't hurt more, right? I right. mean, there's that no I understand. way. understand, yeah. It, it yeah. is more complex and it is a traumatizing death because you do wrestle with that why and the fact that it's preventable and you weren't able to prevent it. You know, because we all think that, you know, we're God or we're superheroes and we can control another human being. But it's it's that why piece and that that part where they died by suicide and coulda, woulda, shoulda's just go on and on and absolutely torture you. And it's part of the process and people try to talk you out of it. But it is just part of the process. And for me, I just said, all right, I see that it's something I'm going to do. And I need to figure out a way not to wallow in it and make myself suffer more. And I need to understand that one day I'm going to forgive myself. And so now when I got to go back to that rabbit hole, I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgave myself because there's nothing to be gained for me to punish myself right let's say it i left you know something out me you know finished himself off with that even if you do that you can't control what another human being does and you just all you can do is the best you can do
1: right right and were, uh, go ahead were there important steps that that you were able to take that allowed you to forgive yourself?
0: I think the first thing was that I had to understand that in order to heal, I had to feel. And then I had to let the emotions in. So that was an important part of my process. Because if I numb them, then I'm going to be never going to get to that forgiveness part. And I'm never going to get to a place where it has softened and it hurts less than it, you know, at first it's so intense. Yeah. But if you don't let those feelings in and you keep pushing them away, it just gets worse.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you suppress them and um, try to numb them and push them away. So I hear you saying you, you had these feelings, you acknowledge them and, and kind of work through them rather than try to push them aside.
0: I did. And I had a lot of different coping strategies. Like I had my grief group and I had two of them. I went to one that was kind of a program that was eight weeks long. And then we met afterwards and then um, another suicide loss support group. And then my writing at, by the, at that point I was doing two posts a day and then I was exercising a lot. Awesome, And then i did a lot of what's called the opposite action. So I'd wake up in the morning, I don't want to get up, I don't want to go to bed, I just want to go back to sleep where it's not all happening <laughs> and like he was alive. But I would say, okay, just put your feet on the floor. That's all you have to do, put your feet on the floor. And once I got my feet on the floor, walk to the sink and brush your teeth. You know, it yeah. was just and it went on like that for months. Right. And at times I had to put post-it notes to remind myself of the steps because I would like get dressed and then get in the shower and go, Oh, that's out of order.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Wow. I couldn't
0: I I had trouble sequencing life, you know. Um, or I would put on my shoes and go outside, and go, Oh, I forgot my socks, you know. I I just couldn't put things in order and things that had too many steps. Yeah. So I would have to put reminder notes so that I would remember the order in which to do things because I was just out of my mind.
1: Do you think this was like some depression that you were experiencing?
0: I think that's part of grief. Uh So I would call it depression, grief, depression.
1: Right. Right.
0: But it, it's not the same as clinical depression. Right. But it was then that I understood depression. I can say that I understood it better having been through that. Yeah. Because it is a, a type of that.
1: Right. Right.
0: But it is a natural, you know, emotional response to loss. Because oh, absolutely. if you you know, if you love, if you've ever loved someone, you're you're gonna grieve their when they're gone, whether that is through divorce or death or parting ways or whatever, it it's a really difficult process.
1: Yeah. And again, I think it's it must be so much more difficult and complex around suicide than, you know, like my father passed away and I had experienced two major bouts of depression in my life and I was so thankful I didn't have a major depressive bout when my father passed away. I was clearly sad, but it was nothing like the depression I had experienced and I would imagine when losing a son which is I mean it's just out of order it's out of sequence you know it was shocking and out of the blue that you become more susceptible than a typical death of a parent or an older person who died by natural causes um, because there are so many question marks and so many things that you're you're struggling with and the guilt and so forth so well
0: that someone who loses a loved one to suicide is at higher risk for suicide.
1: Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you, you wrote this article that went viral. You started a blog, right? And then, and now you have two books out. I do. Yeah. Tell us about and your books.
0: So they're very different. The first one is called Diary of a Broken Mind and it is about our story. And I've included my son's rap lyrics about every other chapter and I do end up on a message of hope and I did a really good job with this book (laughs) I mean I had read some other books and they sounded like timelines and I was like they were putting me to sleep and I said I want one that people can't put down and that's the comment I, I I couldn't put it down. Once I picked it up, it was awesome. like it had me, and its, it's grips. Yeah, that's some and, incredible um, feedback. Yeah, it really is. And then uh, about a year later, I got a call from uh, Wiley Publishing, and one of their staff asked me if I was interested in writing a book for teachers on preventing suicide. And I immediately said yes, and I thought, I'll never hear from them again. And, of course, I did. There was a feeling of panic because I was like, I'm not a teacher. i am I going to do this? But I had been in school speaking, uh-huh. and I thought, well, we'll interview teachers, and we'll interview experts, and we'll interview nonprofit um, leaders, and we'll you know, interview Native Americans and Alaska Native, Native Americans and really get what we need to get. And so that one is, is a teacher's guide for, for preventing suicide. And it talks about shifts that you can make in the classroom, even if you have no leadership support like you know you can do this you're the teacher you can do this in your classroom and you can shift your curriculum to integrate these strategies for problem solving and actually at the same time give yourself some agency and your children some agency because this kind of test taking and pressure for scores and now it's You know, everybody's focused on the loss of learning, and it's like if you just focus on, you know, student wellness, that would come back. (laughs) You know, right? And uh, we shared a lot of voices of lived experience. Uh, My co-writer Kim O'Brien had done a study of teenagers with lived experience, and their voices were included. Wow! So that was a big part of the book. Is including those very very important and beautiful voices and then i had a lot from the blog and finally felt like i had somewhere to put all this this information and these comments and this data and but it's it's a very personal practical book so we didn't want it to be all statistics and dry learning you know there's you know, definitions that we have in there. But I have worksheets. And um, if a child comes back to school after losing a parent to suicide, how should that be handled? Um, how, how do you start a mental wellness club at your school? You know, this is how this school did it. But you can also go with this nonprofit, and they already have a built-in, you know, mental wellness curriculum.
1: Right. Wow, that's really, and really cool.
0: A lot of diversity and inclusion included in this book. Like, you know, okay, here's what the grief looks like from my white lens. Right. <laughs> like, here's what grief looks like uh, from the lens of an Alaska native. You know, here's what they do. And here's what they do in their area to manage the grief. So we talk about prevention, intervention, and postvention. Okay. And also about the teachers, you know, you could lose a teacher and you could also, you know, what do you do about that empty death syndrome? So we have a chapter dedicated to the empty death syndrome as well.
1: Wow. Sounds incredible. So I I also I want to ask you, you know, one of the things that really uh, intrigued me that you have been doing is you have a really unusual creative strategy to essentially lure, and I don't mean it in a bad way, but to get people to your articles where you give hope and so forth. And uh, I think it was an incredible idea. And can you share with us what you do to get people to your websites that that offer hope?
0: So it started with... um, I wrote something and a young lady named Lauren um, read the article and she said, you know, two days ago, I thought about taking my life, but I've read this and now I've asked my parents for help. So what that article did was validate what she already wanted to do, which was tell someone. And at the same time, I looked at my son's death certificate. And at the bottom was written how he made his instrument of death. And I'm like, (laughs) how did he do that? He was no engineer. I mean, he was smart, but, you know, he couldn't, he wasn't a Lego kid. Let's put it that way. And I'm like, how did he put this together? How did he know? And I'm like, oh my God, he Googled it. He Googled it. So I took the phrase, I thought he looked up and then I Googled it and went, oh my gosh, there were videos with instructions. And I thought, I have to compete with those pages. So I wrote an article with that title. And at first, I just had the phone numbers on there. and then Phone numbers to the, reach
1: out for support.
0: Right. Okay. Over the years, I've changed it from just hotlines. And I've, I've added, like Australia, because a lot of people from UK, Australia, India, Malaysia, all over – uh, LGBTQ, the deaf and hard of hearing. So I've added those. I have a video on there, but I also have added um, some podcasts and books and a couple of them are free. And what I see in my statistics is people click on those resources and they order them. Because what I have found out after a while is people want to tell they want to get better they don't want to die by suicide when they're out of that episode and it's frightening it's so scary and it it just brings me a lot of joy to see the fact that they go for the resources and then other people will read things on the site and then they'll leave a comment um and then I answer the comment and I've had People now come back two or three years later and go, you know, in a vast and uncaring world, I left a, com- I left a comment on after a terrible Google search on your site, and you answered me. Right. And right. that's all I needed to bring myself out of the darkness. And what it is is called search engine optimization and content marketing. I did this for decades for dentists. I did it for orthopedic surgeons. I did it for, you know, a diamond dealer and a plumber. And I'm like, you know, if I can help plumbers get leads online, then I can save lives with this method too. And now I have, you know, dozens of articles that rank number one on Google and people find them. You know, how do you tell your parent you wanna die? How do you tell someone you wanna die? I just wanna stop the pain. I mean, all sorts of things. How do you help a friend who is cutting? Um, lots of times it's questions people ask me at my at my presentations. Because you know what if they're asking me, they're typing that in Google. Right. So I come home, I put it in a title, and um you know, there it is. Uh, where was God when my child died? That's number one in the world, too.
1: Right. So you you have titles for these articles that you write that are unrelated to what you've actually written. Because you're writing about hope, but you're actually using keywords from searches that people who are desperate and trying to seek out ways to die by suicide and so forth and you're h- having them hit those key words that then brings them to your article, right? Am I saying that all right?
0: Yeah, it depends on what it is. So okay. like, where was God when my child died? I didn't write that. I had a minister actually write that. Uh-huh. And I mean, he explains how faith got him through the loss of his son by suicide and the death of one of his children to a disability at a really young age. Right, right. And then the one that focuses on a method of how somebody dies, I I don't offer instructions, but I do have hope and resources on the page.
1: But but it's attracting people who are looking for directions on how to die. And then you use those keywords in your article in the title so that people see your article pulls up when they're actually searching for a method to die by suicide, for example. Correct. They click on your article that has a title that resembles that, but then actually you're offering pieces of hope and resources.
0: I am. Yeah. So I've been accused. Uh, occasionally I get cl- accused of clickbait. You know, you're not giving me instructions. But I figure people are not in their right mind at that moment. And a lot of people, until they reach that page, sometimes don't even... Or don't even realize they're looking it up. Yeah. And until they kind of watch the video and they read the page, they're like, Oh my gosh, what am I doing? Yes. And, but then some of people are really angry with me. I've had people leave. One kid left a message that said, Oh, he was scathing that F this F and that. And I'm like, and he goes, you wasted, you know, 56 seconds of my life. And I'm said, you know what? I think it's a good sign if you think 56 seconds of your life was wasted on this video. I think that's a good sign. Yeah, so, right. you know, what can I say? And I said, you know, uh, you're right. Yeah, I guess it is clickbait. I had thought about that when I did it. I was just hurting and I wrote it. And then what's interesting is usually they come back and apologize and said, you know, I was really angry. I said, well, of course you're angry. You feel like hell. (laughs) You know, why wouldn't you be angry? Right. I don't take it. What I'm telling you is I don't take it personally.
1: Yeah. Well, I have to tell you that that in itself just really, really resonated with me because when I was suicidal I found myself sitting in my dark bedroom with the blinds pulled and in the dark and I pulled out my laptop and did a search of my own and I got to the very first site I found showed different methods of dying by suicide and then ranked in it in a number from one to ten and how much pain it would have would give you and a number of seconds that it would take until death would happen. And oh. I, I like slammed my laptop shut, and was in shock that I was on a page like that. Like, uh, it, it allowed me to kind of come to my senses to be like, "Wow, what am like? I'm that deep and dark of a place that that I'm actually searching this." It was really scary to me, and I think had I bumped into one of your sites rather than the one I found. I don't know how I would have responded at the time, right, in a deep, dark depression, Mm -hmm. but I have a feeling it would have been comforting, I would imagine, to come to a site like yours.
0: Well, noticing now how much longer they spend on the page than even just a year ago. Um, Like I added something, um, a friend of mine, Jonathan Singer, who uh, um, has a, a different podcast for social workers, did an interview with Kevin Hines and two of his buddies, and they all struggle with suicidal ideation. And it, it's a podcast that talks about, you know, men and what do you do about this. And I've noticed a lot of people clicking on that and going to it for a resource, you know, because they're men and they want to hear how other men are dealing with things. Right. And, and then the books, there's one that said, um, how you, do you stay alive when your, your brain wants to kill you? Wow. And, you know, it's like $2. And there's another one that's free on Kindle that's very popular that has a lot of downloads for that. And I, I see in the statistics that they they click on the hotlines, I mean, every single day. So I know people are looking for help and resources and they want to know how to feel better. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, you're doing incredible work. You have a couple of websites as well that people can find out more about you and the work you're doing.
0: I do. Emotionallynaked.com is one. Um, And then com is my professional speaker site. And it's just a one page site. Okay. And then Emotionally Naked has like thousands of pages, uh, thousands of articles now.
1: Is um, that where your blog is? And are you continuing with the blog, even though you've published two books?
0: Uh, yeah. So okay. I, I publish probably one or two blog posts a week. And then I write my tribe. I have about 7,000 subscribers. And I write you know, them an email. And it comes every Tuesday morning.
1: Wow, fantastic. Yeah. So uh so if people want to find out more again, that's emotionallynaked.com and com, and I'll put both of those in the notes for the show. That's awesome. And uh Ann Moss, I'd love to ask you before we wrap up. Um I try to end every show this way and asking you for the the most significant tip or piece of advice that you could give if somebody listening to the show right now is struggling with maybe depression or, or somebody who has a family member like a, a son or a daughter who's struggling with depression, what piece of advice would you give them?
0: I think if you've got a family member that's struggling, I think being more empathic, listen more and lecture less, you know, don't try to fix it. Don't try to say, you know, life is so sunny. You really need to listen and ask questions and say, tell me more. Tell me why you feel this way. And and really offer support. And, and go get that support and education for yourself. Yeah. For those struggling, I think the big thing is it's just keep working at it. It, it's not something that happens overnight to to get better, but recovery is not only possible, it is probable. Yeah. I mean, more people survive and thrive than than the opposite. Yeah. And the beautiful stories now that I get from people two and three years out that I met that were just in such despair. And I thought this is impossible. Uh, You know, me just emailing them back and forth. It's just not going to do anything. And they're thriving and doing beautiful, wonderful things. And that's just so rewarding. So it is possible. Yeah, it is.
1: That's awesome, awesome advice for both scenarios. And I like how you included make sure you get help for yourself if you're dealing with a family member, right? That's really important. If you aren't taking care of yourself, you can't help the family member.
0: I'm big in, I'm big into finding support, whether you're struggling or whether you're a family member with somebody struggling yeah. is you have got to have that support group of people that understand what, what it's like.
1: Absolutely. I I love support groups too. And I think that's another great piece you've mentioned. Well, Anne Moss, I want to thank you so much for the incredible work you're doing. You're clearly saving lives on a regular basis. And uh, I want to thank you for, for being so bold and courageous to share your son's story and to help grow others through your story and the story of Charles. And I also want to thank you finally for, for taking the time to be here on the depression files. I really, really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you so much. And thank you for mentioning my son, Charles and his name and everything. I love you for that.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Ann Moss and uh, make sure you stay healthy. I'll do that. Okay. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can text 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression or any other mental illness and would like to be interviewed for the show... Or if you'd simply like to suggest a topic, please reach out to me on Twitter at allevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.